you take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 4. This is the section of the Gospel of Matthew that we were in last week. And I'm going to admit, we're not going to spend very much time here. We're going to use it really as a way to set the context for what I was hoping that we could spend some time talking about this morning. Last week, I said we really needed to pause our study and go deep into one word that is present here. In fact, it's the very first word recorded that Jesus says in Matthew's gospel. It is a repetition of what John the Baptist had said in heralding his arrival. And if you look down at chapter 4 and verse 17, we read this, the very first words of Jesus, his sermon introduction. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just a few simple words, nothing particularly unique in that. Been heard before. In fact, you might accuse him of repeating what John the Baptist had already been saying. The idea of repenting or of turning wasn't new to the people of Israel. They were instructed to do that, and John the Baptist had been preaching that. They had told Gentiles that if they were to become proselytes of the Jewish nation, they would need to repent, turn from their pagan ways, and have to go through rituals to be accepted. Certainly, the idea of a kingdom wasn't new to them. They knew that God had promised a kingdom to David, and that there would always be one who was sitting on the throne of David, a descendant of David. For all the years of captivity, the children of Israel had been away from the land, and now that they were back, they were eagerly anticipating the arrival of that king, the one who would overthrow the Roman government and give them back their monarchy. We know for a fact that after 400 years of silence on the part of the prophets, that the people were eager. They had a very eschatological mindset, meaning they were thinking about the end times it was on their mind. They, they knew it must be coming soon. And with the dawn of the last of the prophets, namely John the Baptist, they thought, well, now is probably the time for us to prepare for the arrival of the kingdom. But when Jesus came and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it wasn't very long before they realized that his message was not a message that declared war against the Romans but a message that declared a war against self-righteousness. In fact, that testimony against self-righteousness continues to this very day, and it is the very essence of what Scripture teaches us that we are to do in light of the righteousness of God. Our topic for this morning is to take just that one word, repent, and see if we can better understand it as it relates to the life, especially of the believer. I know many of us think about repentance as something that we did. If you're a Christian here today, somebody might even have asked you a question along the lines of, when did you repent? And your first inclination is not to say, well, just moments ago. Your first thought is, well, let me think, what year was it when I repented? And that's rightfully so. There was a time when you turned from sin, when you turned from darkness, when, when you embraced the gospel and you repented. But if you've been walking with the Lord for any period of time, you'll know that there is also a regular ongoing repentance. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Repentance is the essence 
of recapturing the truth of the gospel. Inside your bulletin, there's a brief comment about the background of this particular subject and why I think it's so relevant for us this morning. If you were to go back in history, you would know that in 1517, a monk named Martin Luther did something that was not nearly as dramatic as we've made it out to be. Quite frankly, it was a rather normal practice, and that was to take a statement that had been written and nail it to the doors of Wittenberg Chapel. And the reason why that's not so dramatic is because they didn't have a mailbox. That isn't uh, an option back then. That was just how you delivered what you wanted to say. But he did take this rather long document. He nailed it to the door of the chapel. Copies were made. And very soon, people began to realize that this monk had some ideas that were spreading. And one of the main issues for him was the fact that he was appalled by the Roman Catholic practice of selling forgiveness. And he wrote 95 statements. They were called theses. 95 statements. And the first three of them are given to you there, and you can see why it's relevant. The first three read like this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, in Matthew 4, 17, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction, as administered by the clergy. Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. Luther's argument was that genuine repentance could not be bought and sold. Genuine repentance was not going through a system of feeling sorry, talking to a priest about what to do, praying a certain number of prayers, and then through that being absolved of your guilt. Furthermore, even if you did have internal guilt, that wasn't enough because it's not enough just to be sorry. There also had to be a change in the outward expression, in the outward life. This teaching, which has been available to us for 500 years, is no less relevant now as it was back then. And this morning, what I would like to do is guide you through this topic by asking and answering some questions. You'll see them there in your bulletin. The first question, what does it mean to repent Secondly, why does a person repent? And thirdly, how does a person repent? Initially, my plan was to go through the Scriptures and provide more of a systematic approach to this. But that's not typically what I do. It's not my practice, and it's not something I'm very comfortable with. And so what I ended up doing was looking at the third point in Psalm 32. And as I went through that, realizing that's really sufficient to cover almost everything that we want to say here. So we will spend just a couple of moments on point one and two and the rest of our time on point three. But let's begin by looking at Romans chapter two, verses one to four. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. Romans chapter two, verses one to four. I want to answer the question, what does it mean to repent? While you're finding your way there, I can repeat that The idea of repentance as it relates to the gospel is clearly a central component of it. 
We had a wonderful time today in the Sunday school class earlier talking about what is the gospel? What is the gospel that we preach here at our church? And obviously, when you talk about the gospel, you talk about repentance. But there is so much more to it. It's such a a rich doctrine that I think a passage like this helps to bear it out. So Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. I'm going to start in verse 4, and then I'm going to go back to the beginning. Paul is making an argument, a reasoned argument, a logical argument, and he ends the section by saying, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What does it mean to repent? It means to respond to the kindness of God. It means to respond to the kindness of God. He is slow to anger. He is abundant in grace and loving kindness. And he waits patiently that those whom he calls to himself in saving faith would repent and turn to him. Paul is arguing here that the riches of his kindness, the riches of his forbearance, the riches of his patience, they are spurned and they are act, you act like you don't really believe they exist when you refuse to receive his kindness in the form of repentance. Well, let's go back to see where the argument comes from. Verse 1, Therefore, he says, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. If you are judgmental, if you say that something is right and something is wrong, if you have a moral compass, if you have a conscience, you are a judge. And we are all judges. We all judge each other. And, and Paul is saying that, that it doesn't even matter if you judge people based on what Scripture says, because everybody judges. Even though they might say there's no moral absolutes, they will absolutely cry foul if you do something that runs across their concept of what is fair especially if it involves them. And so he says, you have no excuse because you judge. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. You're a hypocrite. You judge people all the time. And therefore, you too will be under judgment. We know, verse 2, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. If you judge, you should expect to be judged. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? What does it mean to repent? It means to come out from under the judgment of God and accept his kindness and forbearance and patience. If you are not a Christian here this morning, if you have not put your faith in Christ, may I remind you this morning that you do remain under the just judgment of God, but that there is no matter of cleaning yourself up that is going to improve your situation. There's nothing you can do to to offset or to mitigate his anger. The only thing that can be done is to accept that somebody else has already taken on all of that anger and wrath and satisfied it. Every other world religion simply tries to reduce the degree of anger that a holy God has against you and then try somehow to pay down that reduced debt. 
like some kind of bankruptcy settlement. You could never pay the full debt, but, but maybe if they would just reduce it down enough, you could get onto a payment plan and you could begin to put some kind of dent in what you owe. The gospel says none of that. The gospel says it is a debt beyond your wildest dreams, beyond your comprehension, and not one single cent is going to be reduced because to do so would be to violate the holiness of God. It must be paid and paid in full. So what do you do? The only thing you can do is put your faith in the one who came to pay it on your behalf. That's what it means to put your faith in Christ. That is the kindness of God, his forbearance and patience. The second question, why does a person repent? Why? What would motivate you to do so? Well, that's the central message of the gospel. It's a central message also of the gospels. In fact, we go back to where we were just a moment ago in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. I could answer the question, why does a person repent with this simple answer? We're commanded to and Christ can help. The reason why we repent is that we're commanded to. I don't think it's incidental that the gospel writers chose to use this command as the beginning of Jesus' ministry. What does Jesus want you to do? He wants you to repent. And the fact that he is telling you that you must repent and that it is because the kingdom is at hand, it is because the king is at hand. And this gracious king says, turn to me in repentance and I will receive you and I will forgive you. Why does a person repent? It's because they've been told to. And because the one who tells you to also says that he will forgive you. What does it mean to repent? It means to not presume on the riches of his kindness, but to be led to repentance. Why do we repent? Because he has commanded us to and because he will forgive. And finally, how does a person repent? Now turn to Psalm 32. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Psalm 32. This is a psalm that most of you are very familiar with. It's the sister psalm to Psalm 51. Both of these psalms are well known because they are believed to be psalms that were written by King David in response to the horrendous sin he committed with Bathsheba. This is a beloved psalm and has been since the time that it was written. It is a gospel psalm, as Luther put it. It is a psalm that is meant to encourage and to guide. It is a psalm of humility and hope. It is a psalm that Augustine had inscribed on the wall of his bedroom so that from his bed, even as he lay dying, he could read it and meditate upon it. And it is a psalm that I believe will guide Christian and non-Christian alike in knowing what it is that God desires for us with respect to repentance. So there are four parts to this psalm. I'm going to give them to you here, and then we'll go through the text. There is a benediction in verses 1 and 2. There is a confession in verses 3 through 5. There's an application in verses 6 through 9, and an invitation in verses 10 and 11. So there's a benediction, a confession, an application, and an invitation. Let's take a look at it. 
We begin by looking in chapter 32, Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1 and 2. It begins with these words, a masculine of David. Now, no one exactly knows what a masculine is. It was obviously a kind of psalm. Most people, most scholars believe that it was a psalm that was meant to instruct. It was an instruction psalm. And that's particularly helpful for us today because it is our communion Sunday, and so we have all of the children with us. Great to have all the families together here. And so as the children are with us, this is a great time for us to go back and look at an instruction kind of psalm. And maybe, parents, you'll have something that you can take from this today that will help you as you instruct your own children in the gospel. But notice how it begins here. It is with a benediction. If you have an order of service there in front of you in the bulletin, you'll notice the benediction is supposed to go at the end. The benediction is the, is the good word that you say to the believers before they are released back into the world. Why would David start with a benediction? Do you think maybe he got it wrong? Was he confused? Did he, did he mess up the order of the psalm? No, of course not. God ordained that he would begin with the end in mind. He would begin with the blessing. He would begin with the dessert. I mean, how many kids in here would love it if every meal just began with dessert? What do you think, kids? That works. I said kids. I got all these adults going along with that. I bet there are some kids that think the minute I become an adult, everything is going to turn around when I get to eat whatever I want, whenever I want. Well, this is the good stuff. This is the blessing. This is the beauty. This is the dessert. He puts it right here at the very beginning. I love how the psalmist just allays our fears. He relieves our anxieties. He lances that infected boil that so many of us carry in terms of guilt and fear. There's a great and immediate relief at the beginning of the psalm. Notice what he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is the first time the word blessed has been used in the book of Psalms since Psalm 1 and 2. So we've had many psalms in between that have not specifically addressed the issue of blessing. Now, in the context of confession, David says, let us bring back the blessings. And over and over again he says it. Blessed, blessed is the one. This is the benediction. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Clearly, he's referring to somebody who is now experiencing the joy of the relief of knowing that everything has been satisfied. And not only that, but it has been satisfied in the eyes of the only one who ultimately matters, and that is Yahweh. And that there is no count that is going to be held against him, no debt, no charge. And in his very inner being, in his soul, he has even been released from the heavy weight of hiding the guilt that he feels by way of deceit. This is how the believer can live every day of their lives if they are in a perpetual state of being committed to repentance. I begin with the benediction and I will continue to move on quickly through the rest because almost all of these thoughts are going to be repeated and further explained as we go. So this brings us to the next section, and that is specifically the confession. I want you to notice in this section from verse 3 through 5, just how many different words are used to talk about sin. 
And from that, let's take aside this particular application, and that is sin is enormously complex. The more we get to know ourselves as sinners, the more we realize how complex sin is. We find ourselves capable of sinning in so many different ways. Now, this is not a virtue. We should not think well of ourselves for our ability to be so creative in our sinning. But instead, we must realize that part of being born with a sin nature, part of being in the line of fallen Adam, is that we have an extraordinary ability to sin. We are prodigious. We are natural experts. We are born with an innate skill. Maybe some of you were born with an innate skill. From a very early age, you manifested a particular ability. I mean, you were better than all of your peers at something at playing an instrument or playing a sport or learning a subject in school. And everybody said about you, you're going to go places because you, I have never seen anybody as good as you. You were always number one. For some of us, we can't relate to that illustration. But here's something we can all relate to. You are all prodigious. We are all prodigious. We are all number ones when it comes to sinning defining ways of sinning, covering our sin, denying our sin. And brothers and sisters, there is no more unifying subject than this. And that applies to preacher and those who are hearing alike. It's a, uh, it's a purifying study to talk about sin and to see how important it is to be in a regular, perpetual state of repentance and confession. And even as mentioned last week, I maintain this, that there are times where you will realize that the older you grow and the more mature you become, by God's grace, the less you sin, the less you choose to sin, the more resistant you are of some temptations, but the more you confess, because you see that so much of what you used to do was sin after all. Well, this confession is complex, and so let's take a look at it. He begins in verse 3 by saying, For when I kept silent, to keep silent is to know something and not say it. To keep silent is to, is to have that acidic, corrosive feeling inside your stomach that you know something is right and true, but you haven't confessed it. I believe that's exactly what David could relate to if the dates are clear enough for us in our copies of the scriptures, we could conclude that for at least a year he hid the sin with Bathsheba. For at least a year he was walking around the palace in open denial. And he writes here what was typical for all of us if we are withholding confession, and that is, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He had the plague of an unsettled conscience. Verse 4, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Brothers and sisters, there is no heavier hand than the hand of God. There's no heavier hand than the hand of God. If the hand of God is upon you, that is a crushing weight. Just like when you were a child and you would have the opportunity perhaps to wrestle with your father, like I used to. And you would begin to think that you were pretty tough, and, and you could take them. 
And I would try, and my father would go along with it for a little while, and then, and then all of a sudden he would no longer feel like going along with it, and he decided that I needed to be humbled and put in my place, and the heavy hand of the father comes down. And you know what that is like. It's an instantaneous reminder that he is dad and you are not. Well, as simple as that might be, and as maybe silly as that might be, extend that out to the infinite degree, to something beyond your comprehension, to the one whose thoughts are beyond your thoughts, and his ways beyond your ways, and his strength beyond your strength, and his holiness beyond anything that you have ever done that is righteous, and that heavy hand of God just comes pressing down upon the one who continues in sin. And David saw that and felt it. And he says, as a result, that my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. It's a word that means to have no vitality. It just sucks everything out of you. He had guilt, but at least that guilt was a guilt that led to something good. I know today we tell people not to be guilty. We tell people to do whatever they can to assuage their guilt. Don't carry around guilt. And there might be a time and a place for that, but can we also agree that there is a particularly good purpose that guilt can sometimes play? Guilt and sorrow are tools that God uses to bring us to repentance. One of the things that we do when we lovingly share the gospel with somebody is bring to their mind the guilt that they are under. Well, he ends this section with the word selah. Selah is also a word we're not entirely sure what it means. I was listening to a famous old preacher in his 90s now, and uh, he said that when he was in seminary, one of the students said, Selah is what David wrote when he broke a guitar string. That's not what he said, but it was a pause. It was a moment for us to take our, our breath, take a breath. It was a moment just to, to stop. And so as we do that there, let the, let the weight of what he had just said kind of rest upon us in this confession. But then thankfully he turns and he, he gives us some relief in verse 5, and he says, I acknowledged my sin. That's the first word we're going to find. Remember I said sin is complex? Well, take a look at that word sin. It's a Hebrew word that meant to miss the mark. You were aiming at something and you missed. In the sense here, he says that you are aiming at something that would be good, but you missed and you did damage because you hit something else or you aimed at something else. This is the sin. And he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. That's really the most important part in this section of the verse. It is to you, to God. I acknowledge my sin to you in an effort to get back into right relationship and fellowship with you. And if I can just pause for a moment and talk about that. Um, I mentioned those two words, relationship and fellowship. And um, maybe, maybe parents, this might be a helpful way if you want to talk to your kids about this, about sin. This is something else I heard from an old preacher, but said when he was young, people used to talk about the two ships. Think about two ships, two boats. And you've got the relationship, and you've got the fellowship. And the way that he would describe it is that the relationship is a ship that is unsinkable. The fellowship is a little dinghy that can easily get into trouble. And when I think about the best way to explain sometimes to even our children about what is it like when sin comes between us, how do I explain that without crushing them or causing them to feel a guilt that's 
appropriate. How, how do I explain in a way that doesn't make them think that somehow as a result of what they did, that even though it's something that I've warned them about before and they keep sinning that way, that I haven't stopped loving them? And maybe those two little words would be helpful. Because we need to explain to somebody that the relationship, the love, is never going to be broken. That no matter what you do, you will always be my child. No matter what you do, I'm always going to love you. No matter what you do, I'm always going to be for you. I can't not love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. And that relationship is never, ever going to end. But the other ship, the little one, the fellowship, you know, that can be broken. Trust can be broken. Things can happen that would cause us to doubt the closeness, the warmth can be severed. And you know, that can happen between parents and children and between children and parents. Fathers, you are instructed in the Scriptures to guide your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but also not to be harsh with them and not to discourage them. It is true that children, for example, can sin and that fellowship can be tested, but it is true, parents, that we can also sin against our children and that fellowship can be tested. And so when we're talking about the, the relationship, it is something that is never going to break, but the fellowship sometimes need to be restored. Well, let's apply that to our situation with God. Is that relationship ever going to be destroyed? No. We belong to Him we are His. We are in Christ. He is never going to turn from us. He's never going to stop loving us. He is never going to judge us. He's never going to pour out the wrath upon us that He's already poured out upon His Son instead of us. That relationship is secure. When David turns back to his father in genuine repentance and confession, there is an immediate sense of overwhelming peace that comes from knowing that that father loves and receives back the wayward child. And what he had been experiencing in the torment of his own soul is the horrendous weight of broken fellowship. And I know that there are probably theologians that would press hard on the issue of fellowship and say that we ought not to use that word in that way, but I'm choosing to use it that way today because I think it conveys very well the sense we have of a distance, of a coldness. And I would remind you that if that is ever the case in your life, it's not because God has withdrawn from you. It's because you've withdrawn from Him. And confession is that bringing back and reconnecting. So he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. The word iniquity there is a distortion. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I didn't try to place something over it so you didn't see it. I didn't try to cover it with some false form of payment. I didn't try to atone for it. And instead, notice what his response is. I said, I will confess my transgressions. There's another word. So we have sin, we have iniquity, and now we have transgressions. 
The word transgressions there is the word for rebellion, to revolt. Every time we sin, we engage in an insurrection against the holiness of God, and we deserve the just punishment that comes to those who would do such a thing. And he acknowledges his rebellion, and he says, it's against Yahweh, it's against you, my covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. I have sinned, I have committed iniquity, I have transgressed and rebelled. But notice his response, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, and you forgave me. There's nothing sweeter than the words, I forgive you. Nothing more restoring, nothing more healing, nothing more peace-granting. There's an acknowledgement of sin. There's a repentance of sin. There's a confession. And then there is the forgiveness. You might say, is this a forgiveness, like a forgiveness unto salvation? Well, the answer is that the first time one turns from their sin and puts their faith in Christ, there is a forgiveness from all sin, past, present, future. It will never again be brought up before the judgment seat of God as something that will stand against you. So let's be clear on that. However, there is the regular, daily, ongoing confessing of sin that does need to be forgiven. It needs to be forgiven between us as believers, but also between us and God. And I do believe that there's a a restorative value in that. And so at the end, yet another selah, another moment of pause and peace. Brothers and sisters, I think I can say with sincerity that it is a grace from God that he will not let you stay in your sin. It is a grace from God that he will not let you stay in your sin. When we violate his law, when we engage in that which dishonors him, because he loves us and is faithful to us, he will bring the heavy hand and he will press it down until we yield, until we cave in, until we confess. And that's not unloving. That, in fact, is loving. Because even as Proverbs says, the one who spares the rod hates the child. The one who refuses to discipline is not the one who loves the child. The one who refuses to discipline is the one who hates the child. But isn't it equally sweet to know that this one who presses down heavy upon us in order that we would confess our sin is also the one who takes that very same hand instantaneously to lift us up and to hold us. Isn't it good to know that the powerful hand of God that presses down is the powerful hand of God that secures and then lifts up again? Lest you think that somebody like David who had sinned such a gross sin and had covered it up and had caused so much collateral damage and had resulted in the sword never leaving his household after that, was now therefore disqualified from ever speaking to anybody else about sin? Who are you to talk to us about sin? Who are you to tell us what we should be doing and not doing? Who are you, David, to sit up there in your high holy seat of judgment 
and tell us that we need to confess our sins? What, what level of hypocrisy are we dealing with here? That's, that's understandable for us to be thinking. And yet, in both Psalm 51, beginning, I think, in verse 13, and also in this psalm here, I want you to notice what happens. There's a pivot, and there's an application. This is the third point here, an application. Look what he says, verse 6 through 9. Therefore, as a result of this, as a result of what he has come through, therefore, let everyone who is godly, and that word godly meant anyone who is in that relationship with God, everybody who knows that they're in that covenant relationship with God, let you, a godly person, already made righteous by God, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. He says to God, when you are here, when you can be found, when you are listening, may we godly ones who have sinned turn to you. And the answer is that surely in the rush of waters they shall not reach him. In this abundant tsunami of guilt and the rushing waters of the consequences of sin, that as we turn to him in humble confession and acknowledgement that we receive the great rescue. It will not reach us. You are high on the hill. You are out of the reach of the rising tide. Verse 7 says, Not only that, but of God to us, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. David himself saying, though a man very much aware of how great his sin was, still because of God's mercy, was not destroyed, but he was actually hidden and kept and rescued. He says that you put me in a hiding place. That means to be hidden away from all of this mountainous uh, uh, avalanche of consequences. You, you preserved me from trouble. That means to keep him. And you surrounded me with shouts of deliverance. Off on the horizon is the sound of those who would come to the rescue. And just contemplating that causes him for a third time to interject this Selah. It's a pause. Let it sink in. And now that moment that is so hard to even believe. Look at verse 8. I believe this is David talking about himself. I think that's the I. Now David, who confessed his sin, was protected by God, who was never allowed to make total shipwreck of the faith, he now turns and instructs others. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. There's no way that any of us can instruct another person in the way they should go with respect to obeying God if we have not received from Him a lavish forgiveness. Because we are so hypocritical, all of us. Who are we to tell others what to do when we ourselves have been guilty? David models it for us, though. He says, not because I'm sinless, but because I'm sinful. And because I acknowledge it and because I know God's grace and forgiveness, now from that standpoint, that's my posture. From there, I will instruct you on what to do. Psalm 51 is the same. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
I will watch you. I will guide you. I will give you instruction. Parents, once again, I encourage you, don't allow your own failure to make it difficult for you to instruct your children. I can speak from experience as a dad who struggled for a long time to be able to give consistent instruction to my own children because I know the depth of my own sin. And, and you know what? They do too. <laughs> if there's any comfort to you, um, parents, this might be a revelation, but your children know you're sinners. It's not going to be a massive surprise. And what can be a very fruitful and encouraging time is when you come to them and have to ask for their forgiveness. Have you ever had to do that? Have you ever had to come to your child and ask for their forgiveness because you said something in anger? You acted in a way that was ungodly. You disciplined them in a, in a, in a way that was too severe or harsh. You didn't do something that you said you would do. Brothers and sisters, this kind of instruction doesn't have to come from a perfect person. It just comes from a forgiven person. And he says, I will watch you and do this. And then in verse 9, here's his counsel. Just don't be like a horse or a mule. Just don't be like a horse or a mule. What is he talking about? Horses and mules were the animals that were used in farming. And you had to guide them by using a bit and a bridle. That's the way that you could control them because they were without understanding. You couldn't train a horse. You couldn't train a mule. And so they had to be guided by these artificial means. And he says, don't be like one of them where you've got to have this thing in your mouth pulling you this way and that. Be sensible. Come to your senses. Understand. Believe. That's the application. Now, finally, here's the invitation in verses 10 and 11. He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. That's the first group, the wicked. And he says, many are their sorrows. There are all kinds of sorrows that come upon them because of their sin. There are sorrows of regret, sorrows of consequences, sorrows of the sin they know is unforgiven. But the other group here, but steadfast love, that's God's covenant love, surrounds the one who trusts in Yahweh. His love surrounds them. His love holds them. When I was a kid, we used to have this fair that would come into town, and they had this ride called the Gravitron. And you would get into this circular enclosure, and you would stand up against the wall, and it would begin to spin. And it would spin faster and faster and faster until the gravitational force pressed you up against the wall. And it would press you so hard that whatever position you happen to be in, when you finally reach that level of gravitational force, you couldn't get out of. You were stuck in that posture. It was so powerful that you literally couldn't peel yourself off of it. It was a horrible ride. <laughs> I don't recommend it should you ever have the opportunity. But if I can rescue it for a good purpose. It's like that in this love of God. It surrounds, it, it presses you up against the very wall. You can't escape from it. It surrounds you. It pulls you. And so he says in verse 11, be glad in it. Be glad in Yahweh. Rejoice. And look how he addresses those who have put their faith in him. 
not the wicked, like at the beginning of verse 10, but he says, be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, O righteous. You can be called righteous and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The righteous and the upright in heart are the ones that are defined quite often in scriptures and quite often in the Psalms as the one worthy to come before God. And one must be very careful not to make it sound like you must work very hard to be righteous and upright and therefore worthy to come to God. Rather, he is saying the righteous and the upright are the ones who are made that way by God. And we know how that's possible because it's through Christ. And isn't it wonderful that he compares these two as the wicked and the righteous? The wicked and the upright. There are only two kinds of people. There are the wicked and there are the righteous. And the righteous are only righteous because they've been forgiven and because they've been redeemed. When this psalm concludes, it concludes in a high note and an invitation for us as those made righteous to simply receive the joy that comes from the forgiveness of a holy God who has had all of his wrath fully satisfied in a substitute. And that very same substitute has clothed us in holy righteousness. It's also the only way that anyone can come and receive the symbol of the bread and the cup and do so in an appropriate way. Friend, if you have not put your faith in Christ and if you have never believed the gospel, may today be the day of salvation where you turn aside from whatever you've been trusting in to make you right with God and embrace the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. And brothers and sisters, for those of you who are redeemed, may the next few moments be a sweet comfort to you as you are reminded of the forgiveness of all of your sin, past, present, future and the righteousness that clothes you so that you can approach this table not hoping that you're worthy, but because you are worthy. With that, let us pray. Our Father, thank you for this sweet psalm. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you for the hope that people like David bring to miserable sinners like us. Thank you that you allowed him in your own providence to commit such grotesque sins that it's almost beyond our comprehension, thankfully. But yet in your providence ordained that after the weight of your heavy hand had been upon him, unlike a mule or a horse, because you'd given him sense, he was able then to understand and to see it and to turn. And that you as a loving father, instantaneously, spontaneously, and without delay, lavish, perfect and full forgiveness. Lord, may that be the sense that each and every person has here today. From you, our loving Heavenly Father. For we pray these things in your name. Amen.